Morning, good to be here with you guys. How's everyone doing? Happy Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. Narrowly missed Happy May the 4th Be With You Day. Yeah. I don't know if you know, but uh, the state of California has officially recognized May the 4th as Star Wars Day. So it's, it's one uh, small area of bipartisan agreement, apparently. Uh, we are continuing on through the book of John. If you've been around our congregation for a while, you know that we've been in the book of John for some time now. We are nearing the completion of it. This is the last chapter, chapter 21. Uh, a good time to review some of the big themes of John. Uh, one of the biggest themes of John is the divinity of Jesus Christ. So uh, while uh, Jesus' divinity is declared in all four of the Gospels, in particular, it is declared in the Gospel of John. Uh, in the passage that we read last week, uh, when Jesus appears to Thomas, who has been doubting his, that he has really risen from the dead, he says he wants to see like the scars on his hands, and then Jesus comes and shows him uh, the scars on his hand. Uh, he says, uh, his reply to that, he says, My Lord and my God. Thomas directly address, uh, addresses Jesus as my God. Uh, I was reading um, some commentaries this week. Uh, it's always good to, to see what like the people that are uh, trying to say that uh, Jesus wasn't God and that the disciples didn't think Jesus was God, uh, what they make of that passage. And uh, I, I read that <clears throat> one of the commentators said that uh, Thomas is saying, my Lord to Jesus, and then that, he kind of looks up and says, my God. So he's kind of like, my Lord and my God. <laughs> so I, I just does complete violence to the text, of course. The, the natural reading is that he's speaking to Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. So the divinity of Jesus is declared throughout the book of John. It's one of the big themes. Uh, the purpose of the book of John, uh, if you were with us last week, we read that John says, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So one of the big, things of, big themes of John is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish hopes. All of the Old Testament promises, as Paul says, are yes in Jesus. So Jesus is the Messiah, the one that was sent. Uh, and then he says that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the third big theme is that uh, eternal life is to be found in Jesus Christ through belief. Not through our works, not through uh, the deeds of our flesh, not through acquiring uh, by our actions a righteousness uh, of our own, but through believing in Jesus Christ. And as the hymn that we sang this morning said, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless we stand before the throne. Those are the big themes of John. So our text today is John 21, 1 through 14. I'm going to read through it again. We read through it once, but it's always good to hear from God's word again. So gird your loins and let's hear from God. It's a quote from the scriptures, okay? I didn't just say that. That's from, that's from Job. All right, God comes to Job and says, gird your loins and I will question you like a man. All right, so we're coming before God's word. He's gonna speak to us. We're listening to him. Gird your loins and prepare to hear from God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard this, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Amen. Great passage. So uh, this is not the most um, uh, replete with theological profundity uh, passages in all of John. Uh, it's a, a pretty simple story. Uh, this is, uh, as John says at the end of this passage, he said this is the third time that Jesus has appeared. And we, we can see throughout it all of those little details that John loves to throw into his gospel. Because John is concerned with emphasizing that he was present for the events that he is recounting. So when he records Jesus' words and actions, he places himself right in the midst of it. So as we enter into this text, it's good for us too to uh, have an eye for the same details that John wants us to see. So first of all, at the end it says that this is now the third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples. The first time had been uh, on the day of Easter, actually Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. That evening, his disciples had gathered together in a room. They had locked the doors uh, because they were afraid of the Jews. The rumor had circulated in the city that the, the tomb was empty, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so they're huddled together, uh, afraid that the Jews are going to try and kill them. And while they're doing that, into their midst walks Jesus. So through, through the locked doors, he appears, and they see him. The second time is eight days later. That's the passage we uh, talked about last week, if you were here. Thomas was not present during that initial appearance by Jesus. And so Thomas, when his uh, fellow disciples told him about it, he did not believe that it had happened. Uh, And so eight days later, again, they're in a room. Again, the door is locked. Again, Jesus walks through somehow these locked doors and appears before his disciples. This time he uh, shows his scars to Thomas and encourages him to touch them to see that it is real. So now this is the third time. Now, when I say third time, I don't mean th- like absolutely the third time uh, because uh, there were other occurrences in which Jesus appeared in between uh, when he rose from the dead and now um, to other people. So he appeared to Mary Magdalene initially when he rose from the dead. There was another time when two of his disciples were walking to Emmaus and Jesus uh, came and appeared to them. So when John says that this is the third appearance, He means that this is the third time in which most or all of the disciples were gathered together and Jesus came and revealed himself to like the the body of the apostles, the body of the disciples. So that is what uh, he means by the third time. Uh, Also significant is where this actually takes place. 
uh, it takes place in Galilee. The first two appearances were in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know how much time has passed between the second and third appearance, but long enough for them to have traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee, which was not a short journey. Why did they go to Galilee? Well, in Jesus' initial appearance to Mary, he had actually told her, go and tell my disciples that I will appear to you in Galilee. Go to Galilee and I will appear to you there. Uh, and so the disciples here, after, after spending a little bit of time in Jerusalem, are being obedient to what Jesus had told them. They've gone to Galilee, and that is where uh, Jesus is going to appear to them. So that's kind of a, an outline of the setting. Uh, some of the specific details that are present in this story. Um, John has, has just a, an amazing eye for detail. Uh, so first of all, he specifies exactly who is present uh, in the boat. He says, Simon Peter is there, Thomas is there, Nathaniel is there, the two sons of Zebedee, that's John himself, his dad was Zebedee, so John himself is in the boat, the author, uh, his brother James, and then two of the other disciples. So eight of the 11 remaining disciples, after Judas has destroyed himself, after eight of the 11 disciples are in the boat. They aren't all in the boat, but eight of them are. Uh, I have a little theory, I don't know if this is true, I have a theory about why just eight were in there. We, we know from uh, the rest of Scripture that a lot of Jesus' early followers and all of his like, kind of core key followers were fishermen. Uh, so Peter, uh, Andrew, John, and James, we know for sure are fishermen. Maybe some of the other ones were too. So I, I imagine that like, there were eight of them that were fishermen, and when Peter says, I'm going to go fish, those, those ones that were fishermen, they're like, oh, we'll go too. And the other ones, the ones that were like tax collectors, you know, city folk, they're like, no, thank you. That would, be, that would be me, by the way. I've gone fishing before, and it was extremely boring. I'm sorry, if I'm offending anybody. I don't know if there's any fishing lovers. I have members in my own family that love to fish. Uh, this fishing that they do sounds like the worst fishing possible, right? They go out. They're out fishing all night long, seven hours, eight hours. How long is the night? It's a long time. How many fish do they catch? None. <laughs> Zero fish. I went fishing for 30 minutes and I didn't catch anything, and I was done. So I would have been on the shore with um, Matthew and uh, I'm guessing maybe Simon the Zealot. He didn't sound like he's a fisherman. Are zealots fishermen? I don't know. Anyway, the, other, the, the remaining three are on the shore. They're not out fishing. Okay, uh, other details. I mentioned some of them. The time period over where it occurs. It occurs over the course of the night. Uh, another thing that... Um, John wants you to know is the exact location of where the boat is in relation to the shore, right? So uh, they see uh, on the shore, they see a man there, uh, and they can't identify who it is. Why can't they? Because they're about 100 yards away from the shore. So, you know, if you, if you, got your, you want to orient yourself physically, get a mental picture of what it's like, it's about a football field away, right? You can imagine a football field. If you're standing in one end zone, you see at the other end zone, you're trying to see who's there. Uh, it'd be a little bit hard to tell who it was. You could see that a person was there clearly, uh, but it'd be hard to tell who it was, especially since, you know, I don't think Jesus was wearing like his, you know, favorite tunic or something. They're like, oh, that's, <laughs> I recognize that tunic. That's Jesus's tunic. Uh, I think everyone pretty much had the same tunic back then, same color, same model. Uh, I don't think there was a lot of like variation among ordinary people as to uh, whether you could identify them by like a distinctive tunic that they were wearing. I don't even know if I'm using the right word. Tunic, cloak, whatever. The clothing that they were wearing, uh, it's far enough away. They can, they can tell that it's a man. They don't know exactly who it is. 
Um, other specific details. Um, I'm guessing there's one detail in here that's so specific. I'm guessing if I just mention it right now, you'll be able to repeat it back to me, even though we just read it a little while ago. How many fish do they catch? 153. So John is very concerned that you remember exactly how many fish. This, this story must have made a huge impression on him because for the rest of his life, he remembered exactly how many fish they caught. 153. Now, if we look at those numbers, one, five, and three, one represents the one God. Three represents the three in one. Five, spoil my joke. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That, I'm, just, I'm just joking. I, that's not real. I, I do not think there's some secret hidden significance in the numbers. Uh, it's not very safe to try and um, come up with numerology out of that. I, I don't recommend doing that. Uh, I think that John mentioned that there were 153 fish because there were 153 fish. He remembers exactly how many there were. And that was an incredible number. I remember what happens to this story. They fish all night. They don't catch a single one, not one. And then Jesus comes, tells them to put down their nets. They put down their nets and they pull up a, 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 a load so massive. It must have been like the biggest load of fish that any of them could ever have remembered catching. Uh, because they go on the shore and they count out. I needed to know exactly how many did we catch. And they come up with 153, a record haul. Uh, the last little uh, thing about uh, specific detail that it's good for us to, to notice in this text is just how ordinary, how physical, how day-to-day this event is. Okay, so they uh, land on the shore after this miraculous catch of fish. And the, the scene that greets him there is that Jesus has built a fire, okay? He, he built a fire, a charcoal fire. It wasn't like some miraculous burning bush. Just the ordinary charcoal fire that they built, that he built. And then he cooked some bread, and he cooked some fish on it. And then they came to shore, and what does he say to them? He says, come and have breakfast. Come eat breakfast with me. Breakfast, yeah. So, uh... I, what I want to um, draw your, uh, your attention to in that is uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus is in his resurrection body. He is the firstborn, the first one to have been raised from the dead. And after him, in the fullness of time, all the men and women that have died, those of us that are still alive when he returns, all of us will be raised from the dead or our bodies will be transformed into a new resurrection body. Now, this body that Jesus had, it was, there was something weird about it, right? Because he could walk through locked doors. Uh, he could just kind of appear wherever he wanted to appear. Uh, so he, this body was somewhat beyond a normal physical body. However, it still had the scars from his crucifixion on it. Remember last week we said that the body that is ascended into heaven that is currently at the right side of God, still bears in it the marks of his crucifixion. It was still a body that would eat. It was still a body that was invested and involved in the physical nature of our world. So sometimes when we think about the next life, if we're influenced by the views maybe of popular culture about what the next life will be like, if our views of heaven are that it's this like ethereal, spiritual, immaterial world into which we will ascend up in the clouds. You know, what's every cartoon picture of heaven like, right? It's like a cloudy ground with like 
uh, golden gates and everything. But the reality is, is that in the resurrection body, when Christ returns, where will we live? On the new earth, the new physical world. And Jesus, when he's raised from the dead, he too is doing the mundane physical things. He eats breakfast and invites his disciples to eat breakfast with him. When we are raised from the dead, when the next life begins, we are still going to be eating breakfast. Amen? That's good news, right? Breakfast, everyone knows, it's the best meal of the day. And not only will it be be breakfast, it will be a perfected breakfast. So think about the best breakfast you've ever had on the new earth. It will be even better. So that is uh, some of the just specific details that John uh, wants to bring out of this text to emphasize that, that he was there. Now, as I said, there isn't like a ton of, uh, you know, this isn't like one of Jesus's theologically profound talks. I mean, basically all he says, right, is like, do you have any fish? Come and have breakfast. I mean, it's not like a theological treatise here. Uh, however, there is present in the text uh, a key metaphor. One of the, one of the re- recurring metaphors that Jesus is, that is present in Jesus' ministry throughout the gospel accounts. Primarily in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but there's also hints of it in John. And that is the use of fish or fishing as a metaphor to understand the ministry of the apostles. So let's talk a little bit about uh, fish in the scriptures. Now, if you guys know this sign here, uh, you've probably seen that on the back of a car that's cutting you off. Um, <laughs> Just kidding, hopefully not. Although if you do have one of those on your car, remember, <laughs> don't cut people off, right? Because everyone knows that that's a Christian symbol and they're going to identify uh, Christianity with your behavior when you're driving. So if you want to cut people off, just take the fish off, okay? <laughs> I won't judge you on that one. Uh, so the reason that this became a symbol for Christianity, first of all, it's very common in Jesus' uh, ministry, but also the, the Greek word, ichthus, was uh, used as like a secret identifying symbol for uh, Christians in the, in the early period, back when Christianity was illegal. Um, you see the, the first letters there. I don't know if you see that. It's, a, it's an iota and then a chi. Uh, or you can say an I and an X if you don't want to remember that. An I and an X. The first letter of Jesus is a, an iota, and the first letter of Christ in the Greek is chi. Uh, and so it, it was kind of like a shorthand way. They would just write I or iota chi, uh, to signify Jesus Christ. And they actually invented, um, theta stands for uh, theos, or God. Uh, Upsilon is huias, or son. And then uh, the sigma is soter, or savior. So if you spell out the whole thing, it's Jesus Christ of God, son, the savior. It didn't, word order was a little bit flexible in Greek. It is a little flexible in Greek. So we would probably say Jesus Christ Son of God, rather than of God the Son. Uh, so it was uh, a, a, a way for the early Christians to identify themselves, to identify themselves with this symbol of the fish and the word ichthus. Uh, another uh, idea in the scriptures of fish as a metaphor is uh, that the fact that this, the disciples, when they were called, when they were summoned to follow Jesus, the location from which they were summoned, many of them, was actually a boat fishing. Like literally, Peter, Andrew, 
John and James were in boats with their fathers fishing when Jesus called them to be his disciples. Early on in the gospel accounts, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these men are are in their boats fishing. And Jesus says, uh, come follow me. Rather than be fishers of fish, you will now become fishers of men. Identifying their old job as a metaphor for their new one. In fact, in one of the accounts in Luke 5, 4 through 10, this story that happens here in John 21 Almost exactly the same story happens previously. So at the beginning of this ministry, almost the same thing happens. The disciples are in a boat. They fish all night. They catch nothing. Jesus comes, tells them to put their nets down again. They pull them up, and there's a ton of fish in there. Peter even has a very similar reaction. Don't you love the reaction of Peter, by the way? One thing to know about Peter's reaction is, if you remember, the last uh, time Peter has talked to Jesus one-on-one, it was when he declared that he would never betray him. And then Jesus said, you will betray me, actually, three times. And then Peter does, betrays him. So they, they haven't yet had you know, that awkward conversation yet, uh, which we will get to in a second, but, uh, or next week. Uh, but Peter, uh, as soon as he realizes that it's Jesus, he jumps into the water and swims 100 yards to get to him. Uh, he has a similar reaction when it happens the first time. Uh, in fact, I think that, uh, you know, if you notice John, when, when Jesus tells them to put their nets down and they start to pull up the nets and they're full of fish, and then John says, it's the Lord. It's probably because he remembers, wait a second, this has happened before. This is the power of God at work again in bringing into our nets these fish. A fourth, or sorry, a third place where we see fish as a metaphor in the scriptures is in a parable of Jesus in Matthew 13. Now, let me tell you this parable because it's, it's very relevant for what uh, John wants us to understand about fishing and the way it's used as a metaphor throughout scriptures. So Jesus is saying this parable. He says, the kingdom of God is like uh, men who are fishing. They put their nets down into the water. The nets fill up with fish. They pull the nets up. They take them to shore. And then they put all the fish on the shore and they separate the good fish from the bad fish. He says, in the same way, uh, the kingdom of God, men will be gathered into the kingdom of God. And then at the end of time, uh, I will, the angels will uh, judge, judge the church and those that were not true followers of Jesus will be cast out of the church. So this um, metaphor, this parable that Jesus tells uh, r- helps us understand what exactly he wants us to convey by the, the, the imagery of fishermen. Okay, so it, when, a, when a fisherman is fishing, uh, our, we often think of like fly fishing or like, I mean, the kind of fishing I did when I got really bored was I just put down the thing and then went like this. That's not the fishing we're talking about, right? We're talking about uh, laying down a net and then according to kind of the vagaries of how the fish are moving, some of them swim into the net, some of them don't. The fisherman has no idea what's happening, but at some point, he pulls his net up. And whatever has swam into that net are caught. This is uh, God's way of conveying, or Jesus' way of conveying, through the metaphor, the nature of the sovereignty of God in its work in salvation. 
that those that are taking out the gospel, the apostles who are taking it out, what they're doing is they're preaching broadly. They're like letting down their nets, speaking to anyone and everyone who will listen. And then when they pull their nets back in, they have no control over those that have heard the message. Who is going to respond? Who is going to believe? But some are gathered in and some are not. Now, there's always a, a danger when we, um, when we start to take a real story, right? This is, a, this is not a parable of Jesus, our text today. It's a real story. This actually happened. That's why I don't think it's safe to uh, try and analyze what 1, 5, and 3 mean in this story. Because this is a story that actually happened. It's not intended to be understood metaphorically. So we, we need to be careful about drawing metaphorical things from this. But because it's fish and fishermen, because we know the way that in the scriptures Jesus wants us to understand fishermen, and because this is the apostles, this is the apostles that this is happening to, the ones who are told that they are to be fishers of men, there are certain conclusions, I think, that we can draw from the metaphorical meaning of our text today. The first one is that the task of the church is to fish. The task of the church is to fish. So these initial apostles, what was the charge that was given to them? As leaders of the church, it was to be fishers of men. Fishers of men. This is a, a task that, or a call that is repeated to them uh, it, when, in Jesus' final commissions and final word. So you know in Acts 1.8, directly before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says to his apostles, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will witness of me and declare me to men, is what he tells them. Then in another more famous passage, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, often called the Great Commission, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. This is the commission that is placed upon the apostles. The task that is given to the church is to be fishers of men, to cast the nets out into the world and draw into our community, into our communion, those in whom God works. Those whom God causes to swim into the net. That leads into the second thing we can get out of this. The power that is at work in the fishing, the power that uh, creates the catch, is the, the spiritual power of God. The power of the Spirit at work in the act of fishing. They fish all night. What happens? They catch nothing. They fish one time. They lay down their nets one more time. And it's full. Unmistakable divine revelation that Jesus Christ is the one who will bring into his church all those that he wants. The power that is at work in the ministry of the church is the spiritual power of God. He alone determines the fruitfulness or lack of fruitfulness of the ministry of the church. A third thing that we see in this Third conclusion that we can draw. That the ones that are caught are known to Jesus and for him. So I'm not going to analyze the numerology of 153, but I do think that John tells us exactly how many fish are caught because Jesus knows exactly how many fish there are out in the world that are going to be caught by his people. And that every single one of those that is going to swim into the nets of the church to be caught by them and drawn in 
are both known to him and are for him. Do you have any fish, he says. Catch fish for me. And the fourth thing that we can know about it, the fourth, I think, conclusion that is safe to draw is that the purpose, the end, the reason it all happens, where it is all leading, why do we fish? So that men may be drawn into communion with Jesus. Where do they end up after they fish? On the shore, sharing a meal with Jesus Christ. Having breakfast together with him. And this breaking of bread with Jesus is a preview. It's a, it's a, a little taste of the feast that will be enjoyed when uh, the Lord returns again, when, when the dead are raised, when the church is gathered before him, what will happen? What will be the first action that follows judgment as the, in, the, in the church of God? It will be the wedding feast of the Lamb. The end of all this, the end of our fishing, the end of bringing men into communion, and the end of our own being brought in is so that we can celebrate and eat and enjoy fellowship with Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God, by the power of the Spirit. This is the purpose of God's church. This is why we are here. And in fact, what we are doing this morning, in our own gathering, all of us together, we too are previewing, getting a little foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. As we come and as we share together the bread and the wine. As we eat together. As Christ is displayed to us. In the bread, which he said is his body. And the wine, which he said is his blood poured out for us. We are both having communion with him in a real way as his people. Friends, that is what we are doing together this morning. We are having communion with God. Don't let that word lose its meaning to us. We are communing together. Jesus Christ is here in the sacraments. And as we eat, we are previewing, getting a foretaste of the feast which is to come. Remembering the death, the broken body, that symbolizes the curtain that was torn asunder that we may enter into God's presence. The blood that was poured out, which is the seal of the new covenant that we have with God. This is what we remember. This is what is presented to us. So this morning, come and have breakfast. If you belong to Jesus, come and eat. Eat the bread, which is his body, and drink the wine, which is his blood poured out you are all invited to the table. Pray with me.